Thank you so much, David. Good morning, everybody. It is great to see you this morning. All four services fell for your bait. When you think of fall, you think of football, partly because of who's saying that. Uh, well done. So we're talking about intentional living this morning, Hebrews chapter 13. Please take out your Bible and join me there if you haven't already. Please find your sermon notes in your bulletin or on your app as well to help you. And uh, as we get started in Hebrews 13, I just have to tell you, my wife is on an airplane right now flying from D.C. to Ethiopia. All week long is, in our home has been kind of getting ready for that. Suitcases out, um, putting stuff in, lists of what to take, uh, lists of what I need to do while she's gone so I don't forget the kids, so I don't forget to... You know, that kind of thing. Don't forget to water this. Don't forget to, we have kids, feed them. Um, at times it felt sort of random and disorganized, all these lists, all these reminders. In fact, on the phone this morning from D.C., she says, and, and don't forget, finish off the quiche and the chard and the squash in the refrigerator. I'm like, really? Okay, we'll, we'll do that. Like, that's real high on my list is the quiche, the squash, and the chard. Anyway. <laughs> As you read this last chapter of Hebrews, you get the impression it's sort of similar. The, the writer has this list of things he wants to be sure and mention before he's done with his letter. Miscellaneous matters to discuss that he's saved till the very last chapter. Important stuff, but sort of hard to organize, okay? The emphasis here is living out our faith intentionally. When I use that word intentional, I mean deliberately and proactively and purposefully. No less than 11 different topics in this chapter, which I've arranged under four main headings. So look for those as we go through the chapter. But the good news is there's something here for everybody. We've got 11 topics to cover today. So that means we're going to have to concentrate. We're going to be moving fairly quickly from one to the next. Are you ready to concentrate and go for it? Let's finish Hebrews. All right, let's finish it up. Remember, the overarching theme of Hebrews is enduring faith. And so the things we're looking at today are descriptions of what it looks like to endure in faith in Christ. First, the Holy Spirit reminds us to love God's people. That's the first big overarching theme, love God's people. Four specific exhortations here related to different kinds of people relationships in our lives. So let me read those verses for you. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So let's begin with the first exhortation, which is let brotherly love continue. That's verse 1. This exhortation concerns relationships of believers with each other. That term brotherly love is the Greek word Philadelphia. It's from two words, phileo meaning love and adelphos meaning brothers. Love of brothers. This is one of the big themes of the New Testament, brotherly love. We have this responsibility with each other. We've been adopted by God into his family. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. And so the first reminder right from the outset is this responsibility to do life together. 
and to love each other well. As Christians, some of these Hebrews that he's writing this letter to had no doubt been rejected by their friends and by their family. But the deepest bond, he reminds them, is the community, the relationships we have in the body of Christ. So I don't know how things are going in the city of Philadelphia today when it comes to brotherly love. The bigger question is, how are we doing at loving each other in God's family? How are we doing here? And then also remember that Jesus emphasized this very same truth. Listen to what he taught his disciples in John chapter 13. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Jesus raised the importance of this very highly. Focus our attention here. And so does the writer of Hebrews by starting with this point. Now, when the writer says, let love continue, he implies the readers already had love for one another. His concern is that it might not continue as strong. And so he says, let it go on strongly. We need to remember this love for each other comes from God. We're not the source of it. He is. Our job is to let it out. Our job is to nourish that love, to grow in our love, to cultivate that love for each other. Having said we're to love each other and let it continue, now he's going to give some specific practical ways to do that. That's the next three things, okay? Number two is show hospitality to strangers. Where there's genuine Christian love, right along beside it is this thing called hospitality. Okay. And that was so important in the early church because persecution drove many believers away from their homes. Also, traveling Ministers and evangelists needed places to stay. Many couldn't afford to stay in an inn, and so hospitality was critically important. Let me read verse 2 again. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. And evidently, the author has in mind the experience of Abraham back in Genesis 18. You remember, perhaps, Abraham entertained the three supernatural visitors messengers from God. Two of them were angels. The other was likely Christ himself. And the passage here, I don't think, is suggesting we should ne necessarily look at every stranger, every new person, every uh, person we are thinking about showing hospitality to and wonder if they're an angel. I think what he's saying is this, that people God sends into our life, he sends into our life for our encouragement and to give us direction and to give strength and to be a blessing to us. So not only do we honor God by showing love to new people, we are often blessed as well. That word hospitality means show love for strangers. So listen, this is not about having your friends over for barbecue. This is not about uh, having the gang over to watch the Seahawks game again this afternoon. As good as that is, go Hawks, okay? That's not what he's talking about here, though. Okay, know this, hospitality by definition is reaching out to people you don't know already, making them feel welcome, helping them connect relationally with others. That's biblical hospitality. And it's one of the earmarks of a true follower of Jesus. By the way, hospitality takes on many faces. Here's a picture from Thursday night at the airport. You might recognize Laban in the middle and the Kettners there. 
So Le Bon moved to America five years ago as a political and religious uh, refugee from Kenya. And he's been waiting for five years to be reunited with his family. That happened Thursday night. Some of his family, his wife and three youngest children, were able to finally arrive Thursday night in America. And uh, the Kettners have been showing hospitality to them and now to the rest of his family. So isn't that great? Amen. Amen is right. Listen, listen, hospitality is recognizing spiritual opportunities that God gives you and stepping into them. Question, when was the last time you showed biblical hospitality to somebody? See, this is not a suggestion, it's a command from God. Live your life with Christ with this kind of intentionality. May I suggest to you a couple specific opportunities to be aware of in the next few weeks, all right? So we're kicking off our fall series next week. It's called Happiness. I'm super excited about it because I've been studying the materials. We've already had some guests join us from the invite cards we mailed out, but we've sent thousands of those out, sort of put out the, the welcome mat. We're going to have many more guests joining us next week. We always do when we do that, okay? So please open up your hearts to guests. Be ready to warmly receive them. Show them your best welcome. Be friendly to them. Give them a warm greeting and a good seat. And if they come as a family, make room for them to sit together as a family. That's opportunity number one. Show hospitality to our guests each and every week. And especially as we enter into the season, we expect more guests. God says that's important. Opportunity two is to go out of your way also in just your everyday daily life with your neighbors and whoever else God brings in to your life. You see, God has given us a mission of reaching people with the gospel, of sharing him with others he brings into our lives. So don't just zero in on that comfortable circle of friends that you have, but open up your hearts to new people, your neighbors, your fellow students, your co-workers, others. Okay? Go out of your way to be hospitable. Invite them into your home or go out for a cup of coffee or however God shows you to do that. Again, by definition, hospitality is showing God's love to strangers. Number three, the third way we're to live intentional lives as believers is to remember those who are mistreated. Remember the mistreated. Another way we love God's people is to identify with those in prison and those who are suffering because of the people who are hostile to Christ. So that's verse 3. Verse 3 says, Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. So he's picking up the illustration that Paul gave in 1 Corinthians 12. The body, or the church is like a body, a human body, many different members of the body. When one member is hurting, the whole body feels it, the whole body hurts. And it was not unusual for Christians to be arrested and imprisoned for their faith. To identify with those people could be dangerous for these first century Christians. And yet, he says, Christ's love demands it. Remember them. Reach out to them. Last Saturday night after our worship service, I was speaking with a group of three students, and this young gal in her 20s was telling me about her experience. She was on a mission trip in Egypt last year, and she was arrested for her faith. She was 
incarcerated for a few days, and then she went on to explain she's getting ready to go back to Egypt in January. And I'm like, really, you're going to go back? She says, yeah, I just can't get away from the fact that God's impressing on my heart. I need to go back. I need to encourage the believers, but I also need to share with those who don't know Christ yet. She said, it's a very difficult decision, but I just feel compelled by God to go back. In our country, we're not arrested for our religious beliefs, but in other parts of the world, it is common for Christians to suffer for their faith. I want to suggest a couple of resources to you to check out. The first one is called persecution.com. It's the website of Voice of the Martyrs. It's a great resource, good stories there. If you have children or grandchildren, a great resource to, to share stories with them and pray for those who are being persecuted for their faith. And the other resource is called the 838 app, the app that Tom Doyle shared with us about a year ago that encourages us to pray daily for the persecuted church. It's based on Romans 838, but at 838 p.m. every day, they send out a story and a reminder to pray for someone who's being persecuted for their faith. And I want to read the one that came out just two days ago. Listen to this. ISIS member comes to church in the Middle East. Pastor R. had seen him before. The man was a well-known terrorist with a long history and now a member of ISIS. And he was sitting in the middle of his church. I knew a conflict was coming sometime during the service, and Rashid could only be there for one reason, to kill me. Pastor R. found it hard to concentrate on the message, but at the end of the sermon, he gave an invitation to receive Jesus. The church was packed, and several jumped to their feet. Rashid also joined the line and headed towards the pastor. Should I fight? I was a boxer in college. Should I defend myself, thought the pastor. Finally, the moment of truth happened. Rashid stood face to face with Pastor R, and the congregation held its breath. You know why I'm here. The Islamic State sent me to kill you but I want to receive Jesus instead. What? Are you kidding? Is this really true? It is. Rashid went on to tell Pastor R that his message was the first time he had heard the Bible taught with a clear presentation of Jesus. Rashid shared himself, but I know about Jesus already because I have been seeing him in the lives of the people that love him. I wanted the love they had to be in my heart too. We're seeing miracles as Muslims are responding to the gospel like never before. Thank you for praying every day at 838. So they're not always quite that dramatic, but uh, always a good reminder how we need to remember the mistreated, pray for them, help them as God enables us to do so. Here's the fourth exhortation of our text today, and it's to honor marriage and sexual purity, to honor those things. You know that the number of couples living together in the United States has quadrupled since 1970? But that is not just a problem today. It was back then as well, though perhaps in slightly different in nature. Let's see what he's talking about here in verse 4. Verse 4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. I see a couple of concerns he's likely 
writing this toward, okay? Uh, first, Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 7. He told them, in view of the persecution that he saw coming back then, he said, it's better to remain single. It's probably better not to get married. So probably these believers were wondering, is it right, is it wrong for a Christian to marry? So he's reaffirming marriage as a God-given gift. He's guarding against anything that might detract from or lower the dignity of marriage. He's saying marriage is to be lifted up. It's to be held in honor as a sacred gift from God. The other concern he's addressing likely is the matter of sexual immorality. In fact, he says that. This was an issue then as well as it is today. We live in a culture where sexual sins are paraded as entertainment in movies, on television, throughout the culture. And the church, we need to be clear to declare that sexual purity in marriage is what honors God. It's one man and one woman till death do us part. That's God's plan. That's what he created. That's what honors him. And that's why the writer reminds us God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So that doesn't mean that that God's going to send lightning bolts from heaven when people sin sexually. But we can safely say this, choose to sin, choose to suffer. And I'm not talking just about sexual sin, I'm talking about any sin. Choose to sin, choose to suffer. There are consequences for our sin, even if we don't see them immediately. And his purpose here in saying this is to protect us to caution God's people so we experience his blessings rather than his judgment. So let's say that you're thinking to yourself, Jim, I am struggling in my marriage. What should I do? Three, Three thoughts for you. Number one is to start by confessing sin and asking forgiveness from your spouse, okay? Start by confessing sin and asking forgiveness. Secondly, If you're married, get yourself into re-engage, our marriage ministry that meets here every Thursday night. Okay, You're you're never more than one week away from help toward a better marriage. Get into re-engage. Thirdly is to get godly counsel if you need more and additional help. Okay, And also remember that every Christian counselor, not every Christian counselor knows how to give biblical advice. So make sure you get godly counsel. Again, honor, marriage, and sexual purity. And now that brings us to a second major category of exhortation. We're going in a completely different direction now. You ready? You ready to switch gears? How to love God's people was number one. Second category is be content with God's provision. Be content with God's provision. I saw a reader board out in front of a church that I liked this week, so I wrote it down. It said, comparison is the thief of joy. Comparison is the thief of joy. It steals our joy because it destroys our contentment. Here's how the author of Hebrews puts it in in verse 5. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. What is the command? Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. So the question is, how are you doing in this area of contentment? Friend, how are you doing today? Do you love money? Are you always thinking about money? How how can I get more money? What what do I want to buy next? 
how, how can I save more for retirement? How, how can I buy a, a better this or a bigger that? See, that's an issue of contentment. It's, it's the problem of having the love of money. Say, is money evil? Absolutely not. But loving money is. In fact, 1 Timothy 6.10 says, the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. Fortune magazine says nearly one-third of all lottery winners declare bankruptcy. Think about that. Meaning they're worse off than they were before they became rich. Okay, You see, money doesn't satisfy us. It doesn't bring contentment into our lives. In fact, often money brings more heartache and more trouble along with it. I also read this week that if you make $30,000 a year in income, you are in the top 6% of everyone in the world. See, for most people, the problem isn't how much money we earn. It's how content with what we have. It's how content we are with what we have. Some questions to ask yourself this morning about this, okay? Six questions. Do you think you would be happier if you had more money? Do you really believe that lie? Do you struggle to put God first in tithes and offerings? Can you think of a time in the past few months when you saw or heard someone in need and you gave to them, you were generous with them? Do you live on what you make or do you live on more than you make and have to rely on credit to get by? That's a possible indication of loving money. Three words, if that describes you. Financial, peace, university. Okay, we're, we're signing up people in the foyer for the class right now. It's a fantastic resource. Financial Peace University. Sign up online. Stop by the table in the foyer. It's, it's, it's amazing. Number five, are you checking on your investments more than once a month? Do you watch the stock market or some other investments often because you're concerned about your money in the future? Finally, are, are your goals about getting money, about Acquiring more, or are your goals about giving it away, being generous with your money? A verse I never grow tired of sharing with you is Proverbs 11, 24, and 25. It says this, Give freely and become more wealthy. Be stingy and lose everything. The generous will prosper. Those who refresh others will themselves be refreshed. Do you believe that? Friends, that is one of the greatest faith-building experiences in my life, to experience how God blesses the generous person. Have you experienced that? Because if not, there is a spiritual breakthrough just waiting for you. He's talking about simplicity as a lifestyle, contentment with God's provision, generosity as a way of life. And here's where that all begins. Proverbs 3.9 says it. Honor the Lord by giving him the first part of all your income. That's called tithing. The word tithe actually means one-tenth. And it's the first part of your income. That, see, this is a discipleship matter. There's nothing that we can give to God that he needs. God doesn't need our money. But when we give him an offering, when we put our tithe in, we're saying, God, I love you. I'm thinking about you. I want you to be first place in my life. Tithing doesn't just honor God, it's an act of worship. 
And then notice what the writer of Hebrews goes on to say. Let's read verse 5 and add verse 6. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? That's fantastic. Love that. We will be free from the love of money when we put our confidence in the one who promised, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He's the center of my life. Lord, you're the center. You're the most important thing. And I've learned to have confidence in your provision for my life. That word confidence means cheerful boldness. Is that how you look toward your money, toward your finances, and toward the future with cheerful boldness? We can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? You see, sometimes the issue with money is fear. We love money out of fear. Fear for the future, fear for our jobs, fear for the company that we work for, fear for what someone else could do to us. I mean, that's why I'm hoarding up my money for the future. Remember the context of Hebrews, who these people were getting this letter. Some of them had forfeited all of their possessions for the sake of Jesus Christ. It would be so easy for them to be afraid, to be discontent, to be covetous. And so the exhortation is make God the center of your life and learn to trust him in the area of money. Be content with his provision for you. All right, what's the next topic? Well, beginning at verse 7, we see this third area of living the Christian life well. How to be intentional in yet another area is follow God's leaders. Follow God's leaders. We're changing topics yet again. Let me start with this one beginning at verse 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So that's a very intimidating verse for a guy like me, right? So I, if I was writing this letter, I'm not sure I would have said that. And like many preachers who preach through Hebrews, they, they, I, I was tempted just to skip this verse. Okay? Follow God's leaders in the church is what he says. And he goes so far as to say here, imitate them. Consider the outcome of their life and imitate their faith. Set your, friends, set your sights on the elders and the pastors and the small group leaders and the ministry leaders here at Lake City and imitate them. And in the context, he's especially speaking about those leaders at church who speak the word of God to you. That's a great definition of a spiritual leader. It's someone who speaks the word of God, who ministers the word of God to you. So that means you don't have to be a preacher to be a spiritual leader. You don't even have to have a formal teaching role to be a spiritual leader. Then notice that word consider. That word means look attentively at something. It means observe very, very carefully. Consider the outcome of their life and imitate their, what's the word? Imitate their faith. Wow, pray for us, please. Okay, that's a huge responsibility. And you know, the more you watch Christian leaders, the more you will figure out that, that we're not perfect, that they're not perfect, right? Okay, so, so what do you do when you, when you figure out that your pastor, your, your elders aren't perfect? What do you do? Now you go find another church, right? That's, that's, that's what many people do, and sometimes that might even be the right thing to do. 
But what you need to look for in spiritual leaders is humility and a readiness to repent. Not perfection, but a readiness to repent when, when wrong. You should see that over time they're growing and they're becoming more transformed to the image of Christ. Imitate their faith. In the context here, some of their leaders had been faithful to Christ in the midst of persecution and suffering. And yet their faith remained strong. They endured. And he's saying, learn from them how to stay strong in your faith. And then he goes on from there and he says, endure with them. That's verses 8 and 9. And the context here is doctrinal endurance. Verse 8 says this. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. So he's warning against false teaching. These... This would include any teaching contrary to the Word of God. And by the way, the, the New Testament contains countless warnings against false teachers and false teaching. In fact, the New Testament says that in the last days, false teaching is going to get worse and worse and greater and greater. So this is very important for us to consider today. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. You ever turn on the television or the radio and hear some pretty strange things? I know I do. Okay, that word diverse means many colored. The word strange means foreign or alien. If you're ever watching or listening to some preacher and you think to yourself, think to yourself, man, that's a, that's a weird doctrine. That's a weird truth that he's teaching. Does that ever happen to anybody else? Okay, I'm not alone. Okay. You say to yourself, that's just so weird. And the reason why that's so weird is because it is weird. There is so much weird stuff on television. Okay, don't be led away by that. Don't be led away from the simplicity of Christ crucified, from the centrality and sufficiency of God's Word. If you hear people talking like they're modern-day apostles and prophets and healers, one of the word names for that is the New Apostolic Reformation. Listen, don't be led away by that. It's the supremacy of Jesus Christ in all things. Friends, stay on the bullseye. Stay on track on Christ and Christ alone the rest of your life. That's discipleship. Endure in your faith. And then notice the words, it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods. Some of those living under the old covenant said, you know, the way to please God is you eat this list of things and you don't eat this list of things. That refers to all of the Jewish diet restrictions in the Old Testament and other uh, ceremonial practices that they had as Jewish people. And Romans chapter 14, verse 17 says this, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of what we eat or drink, but of living a life of goodness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So following Jesus is an internal thing. It's a heart thing primarily. It's not about externals like rituals and ceremonies or candles and diets, okay? So don't be led away by that kind of false teaching. Follow God's leaders. Endure with them doctrinally. Third, he says, and I'm skipping down to verse 17 to keep the theme going. He says, obey them. Obey them. 
Let me read the beginning of verse 17 for you. Obey your leaders and submit to them. I'm going to come back to it, but I want to stop right there for now. So how many of you have been part of a church with a congregational form of government? So that's a church where the congregation votes on everything and makes all the decisions and the leaders follow. And that's very sad, okay, because that's not a biblical form of church leadership. The Bible says pastors and elders are to lead and the congregation is to follow them. Of course, our congregation selects the pastors and the elders, so the whole congregation has a huge voice in their leadership. But, and we believe in a, a plurality of elders who lead the church. That, we believe that's a biblical model of church leadership. But how is the congregation to relate to its leaders, the leaders of the church? Well, the verse says, obey your leaders and submit to them. Now, that does not mean that leaders in the church should be like dictators. That doesn't mean that at all. And the safeguard that he adds there is that one day every pastor, every elder will give an account to God for the way they lead his church. Sadly, many church leaders have taken the idea of submission way too far. I like how Chuck Smith used to talk about this. He said, a teacher teaches to submit to God, not to himself. Amen? Amen. Why is the congregation to obey their leaders? Well, let's keep reading. Let's start from the beginning again. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For, that's going to tell us why now, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Two things, two reasons to obey your leaders, he says, for they keep a watch over your soul and will give an account to God. And secondly, he talks about the fact that's an advantage to you in the long run. Cooperative conduct is not only a joy to spiritual leaders, it's profitable for the whole body. Okay, and I just have to pause here, and I want to just tell you once again as a church how grateful I am for you, the kind of loving church family you are. Over the last 30-some years, I have served in several churches but I have never served in a church with the degree of love and unity that we have here. And so I just say thank you. I bless God for for you. And personally, I believe to a very large degree that's a result of prayer. We are a praying church. We have a praying leadership team. We have a, a praying body. So keep that up, please. Okay? Thank you for your part in that, and please keep that up. Then notice verse 18. What's the next thing about our leaders? Well, the next thing he says is to pray for them. Pray for them. And he's emphasizing the importance of prayer right here. He mentions later in the chapter that he can't personally visit them, but he did want them to pray for him. Let me read that. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. So leaders are not perfect. Only God is perfect. But we need God's help to make sure that we make good decisions, that we're doing the right thing for the church. And that's one reason why we need your prayers. So let me ask you, let me beg you again, please, please pray for your leaders of the church. That's not to say we won't make mistakes. We will. But I, I love the fact that here what he prays is not for 
not that he will be perfect, but pray that we will have a clear conscience and that we will act honorably in all things. All right, we're changing topics of exhortation one last time. Ready for a brand new subject? Here we go. Love God's people, be content with God's provision, follow God's leaders, and finally, worship God's Son. Worship God's Son. And he says, worship God's Son first by where you stand. This is an issue of loyalty. You might jot the word loyalty down beside it. One of the ways we show loyalty to Jesus Christ is by standing with him, by identifying ourselves as his followers so everyone knows. So we're going to go back to verse 10 now and notice what he says there. Notice while, as we do that, he's going to review like any good preacher. He reviews what he's been talking about in the letter previously. Let's pick it up at verse 10. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. So what's that all about? Well, apparently some false teachers claim that if these new believers, these Jewish background people who had become believers in Jesus Christ, if they stopped making sacrifices, they would have no way left to offer worship to God that's acceptable. So the writer says here, believers who leave all of that old ritual of the old covenant, they're not forfeiting anything. Rather, they're gaining access into the presence of God in a better way. So the author views the death of Jesus here as a sin offering. He says, because Jesus was crucified outside the gate, just like the sin offerings of the Old Testament. Okay? And the emphasis in this section is, leave that old dead religion behind. Instead, identify with Jesus and his rejection. You see, all true Christians must go out to Christ, spiritually speaking, and, and side with him in his rejection and reproach. So these guys that he's writing to, many of them were looking to escape persecution from unbelieving Jews. And basically what he's saying is, forget that. You can't do that. Get out of the Jewish system and stand with the Savior who died for you. Show your loyalty to him. Identify with Christ. In other words, if, if Jesus suffered shame, what are his followers going to experience? Shame. If Jesus experienced harsh treatment and ridicule because of his commitment to God, what are we going to experience? The same thing. Okay? And if that's never happening to you, that might just mean that you aren't standing up for him like you should be. If you're a student, some of you know that uh, See You at the Pole is coming up very soon. It's a great opportunity to do what we're talking about here, to identify with Christ. Worship God's Son by where you stand. Secondly is worship God's Son by what you say and do. We show loyalty to Christ by the things that we do and by the words that we speak. That's verses 15 and 16. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, 
for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Judaism, the old system that many of them had come out of, was concerned with external things like sacrifices and diet. And so the writer focuses here on the sacrifices God said, that God says really do matter to him. The first one is the sacrifice of continual praise from our lips and from our hearts to God. How easy it is for suffering saints to complain, but how important it is for them to give thanks to God who has given us so much in his son. The second sacrifice they're to offer to God is good works and sharing. Do good and share what you have. Okay? That includes hospitality. That includes helping those who are mistreated, sharing money with those who are needy, being content with God's provision. All of those are powerful demonstrations of our love for God and also powerful witnesses of Christ. As we wrap it up today, I want to give you a chance to think through some specific next steps. Okay? We're talking about intentional living, about enduring in our faith in the midst of trials, and I want to challenge you to be very specific as you think about applying this. Four areas under next steps. Here's number one. I will love God's people by, remember that's the first area we talked about, I will love God's people by showing hospitality to strangers, praying for the mistreated, pursuing sexual purity, loving the brethren, whatever God's spirit is prompting you, why don't you just write down one of those words here. Next step number two, I will be content with God's provision by, same idea as the previous one, fill in the blank with at least one word. Pursuing contentment by simplifying my lifestyle, by starting to tithe regularly. Be content with God's provision. Next step three, I will follow God's leaders by, four words to pick from here, okay? Imitate their faith, endure doctrinally with them, obey them, pray for them. Please write one of those down. And then finally, number four, I will worship God's son by, by standing up for him, by identifying with him publicly, or by what I say and do, by doing good and helping others. I'm going to give you about 30 seconds to finish up writing in your next steps, jotting them down as a reminder, and then I'm going to close this in prayer. And as part of what I'm going to pray, I'm going to pray the benediction that we didn't get to, but it's in verses 20 and 21, so you'll hear me pray that in just a minute. But finish your, your communication, I mean your uh, sermon notes, and uh, then we'll pray. Father, we thank you for this practical and uh, so applicable section of your word about how to live intentional lives for you, how to endure in our faith when times are tough. God, help, help us to hold on to your grace. Help us to endure in our faith. Help us to bring glory and honor to your name. And friend, if you're here and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, I also want to give you this invitation to come to him by faith today. I invite you to pray silently in your heart and just say something like this to God as you receive his forgiveness. Say, God, I need your forgiveness, and I ask for it today. I understand I can't earn it, but I can receive it as a gift by faith in Christ. Thank you, Jesus died for me and rose again to forgive me. I invite him in today. And now may the God of peace, 
who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you.